Hi, you guys. Welcome to another episode on On the Slab, the podcast where we watch movies, then we take them apart to see how they tick. For this week's episode, we decided to switch things up a little bit and have a guest host on the podcast. And this week, we are talking about Adam Sandler's 2004 romantic comedy, 50 First Dates. Our guest is JB, who suggested we do a rom-com to kind of break up the action-slash-thriller-slash-horror stint we have been going on um, on the podcast. And it was really great to have him on. Um, We hope to keep working with more people, getting more guests on the show, to kind of share the movies that they love with us and tell us why they like them. If you guys have any recommendations for movies we should see, please feel free to tweet us at at on underscore the underscore slab. So that's at on the slab. Or you can come and like us on our Facebook page um, either way and leave us a comment. We're going to add our social media details for you guys in the info for this week's latest episode. And we hope you enjoy 51st Dates. Today we are going to be talking about the 2004 Adam Sandler movie, Fifty First Dates. And JB, you're the one who brought us this movie. So we're going to go into time of death here and we're going to see a little bit about the context around this movie, not only culturally, but also personally, like what we're all kind of about. And JB, since you brought us this movie, also say hi to the audience. Hello. That's JB. That's the voice. Uh, Since you brought us this movie, why don't you first tell us... What's your connection? What's your, you know, personal... What is Fifty First Dates to you? Fifty First Dates to me is probably the last movie I enjoyed seeing with my mother. Aww. And that sounds weird. She's not dead or anything. Oh, but okay. I we were thinking... together. Yeah, I know, right? It's a terrifying moment. Oh. oh, God. But I saw this movie with her the year it came out at a drive-in movie theater oh, wow. in Indiana. Oh, that's so dope. And yeah, and so I have a kind of personal connection to this movie because this really does feel like a movie that's good to watch at a drive-in. So I have a sort of soft spot for it, flaws and all. And what about you, Annie? Oh, God. Um, I think I saw this like twice on TV when it was being rerun or something. Um, And it was... I also remember watching it with family. So it that's kind of interesting that that's kind of a shared quality. But yeah, I watched it on TV. Not quite sure what I thought of it at the time, but now I'm kind of like a little bit, uh, a little unsure. How about you, right. Salu? Uh, I'm not sure that I watched this in theaters, but I definitely did watch this with family. This was back before we had good broadband in Thailand. So I got it on, D- we had it on DVD and my sister loved this movie. Like, my mom hates the movie Beethoven because we had that on VHS when I was, like, six. I, ha- I I had that similar kind of hatred for this movie because my sister loved it. She could go around the house, wouldn't it be nice? You know, oh, the whole God. thing. Um, but I thought it was... Singing badly on purpose. Yeah. It's still singing badly. Okay. <laughs> You're the guest here. This is my house. Okay. But, um, you know, I- I've seen it multiple times and... In my mind, it was just kind of bland uh, Adam Sandler comedy. So, okay. yeah. Well, actually, a little bit more context. Uh, just because, and I'm going to go ahead and share a bit of personal stuff here, but my grandmother has actually been suffering with dementia lately, and there's oh. been a whole lot of drama around that. So that's a new bit of tone that's come around this, and it's it's added a little bit to it, but I'm not, we'll get to that. So, JB, 
Uh, let's go ahead and go to the preliminary examination, which is our summary phase. So, JB, since you're the one who brought us this movie, tell us a little bit about it. Tell us what happens in this movie. Give us a little summary, a little synopsis. Sure, no problem. This movie opens on the character of Henry Roth. And Henry Roth is kind of a playboy. He's a Marine veterinarian. He works at a large... I guess it's sort of like a sea world. Yeah. And he has a talent for wooing women. This is, well, okay. <laughs> wooing women might be a bit too strong of a word. More, he has a talent for seducing women. And he uses this talent on a lot of people. But he ends up wrecking his boat and ending up on an island. And on this island, he meets a girl who just captures his mind. Love at first sight. And takes her on a date against the will of a lot of people around. And then he starts showing up again the next day. And the next day. And as he shows up, he begins to notice that this girl not only has the exact same schedule every day, but that she does not remember him from day to day. This is because she has enterograde amnesia. She does not remember the previous day. Her memory caps at 24 hours. It never hits long-term storage. So, going forward, it's him finding increasingly inventive ways of spending time with this woman who cannot remember him day to day, and her family and friends becoming more and more creeped out with his fixation with her <laughs> against their wishes. This is making it sound Avenged. like a horror movie, and I absolutely love it, that. <laughs> well, in the beginning, it kind of is. It's like, as if it weren't for the auditory cues and the framing, right. if you just set it a little darker, played the music a little quieter, yeah. and this could very easily be a stalker flick. We'd be looking at the next Michael Myers. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, Big Bang Theory without it's, the laugh track. Right. Yeah, it's it's spooky. But a wrinkle comes in when a cop tickets her car because it doesn't have up-to-date plates. Because they can't change her plates. If they change her plates, she'll notice the difference. And what happens after the cop notices will have to happen again. Which is, the illusion is broken, and the day that she has been reliving for the past several years... <laughs> And that's literally true. Her friends and family are making sure that the day that she is about to have has been the same for several years. And that is exactly as creepy as it sounds. It I'll give you a little correction there. It's basically a year and a day. Oh, it's a year and a day? Pretty much. It's like last October. Okay, I thought it was closer to two years. It's irrelevant, but it's not several years. That's fair. And... It's, and then they have to take her aside and take her to a doctor who explains her malady and that she got into a car wreck that cost her her ability to form new memories. And that's a plot point, so stick a pin in that for a minute. Going forward, he's still trying to date this person who doesn't remember him, and his family is kind of having less of it. And, try, and he tries to leave, but a passing comment made by her father draws him back in. And he, tr he tries a different tact. He wants to, instead of letting her relive the same day over and over and over again, to tell her about the world as it has changed through her memory right at the beginning of the day. And sort of try to let her get on with life instead of being time-locked eternally to her father's birthday. Mm. This sort of works. It's all right. It's passable. Right. And after a while, it just feels kind of tragic. He tries to take her out of this life and it backfires a little bit. And then he come, brings her back to the island but he hears from her father that a detail of her life that had changed after she met him was persisting even though she wasn't seeing him. 
So he decides that she does remember him, even through the amnesia, comes back, discovers, kind of, and and then they decide that they're going to try to be married and to do that thing. And the movie ends kind of heartwarmingly with a video made of all the events in our shared life up to this point, with the implication that this is the everyday. Hmm. Gotcha. I think that's an all right summary. That's a great summary. It's a movie that can very easily slide off the. Brain. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'll just. <laughs> so I apologize. No, that's fine. Yeah. I'll just go with a couple of corrections. Uh, first yeah. of all, there's kind of two, not quite breakups and so on, but he's he's always eager to be with her. Uh, just yeah, her family tries to scare him off, so he's like, oh, well, he said stay away from the cafe, so I'll like intercept her on the road afterwards and so on and so forth. Right. And she breaks up with him because she sees, uh, his act. The, you know, he's making her fall in love with him every day and all that. And also that he used to speak about his dreams of going on, like, a big research expedition on hold for her. And she feels like he is burdened to her. And another point, and this, I'm going to come back to this when I talk about Adam Sandler's sense of humor, is that she specifically erases him from her diary. Oh. That's a good point. Yes. Yeah. That is That is a point that I glossed over. Yeah. Okay, so what did we all think of this movie? Let's go to our first incision here. What are what what was so, uh what was something we liked about this movie? Annie? Um I liked that it was set in Hawaii. Yeah, just beautiful location. <laughs> yeah, I think that's about it to be honest. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with that. Sylvia, what was something that you liked? I really enjoyed Drew Barrymore's performance as Lucy in this. Okay. Uh, there's kind of a couple different phases to the movie. There's the beginning Adam Sandler comedy, uh, he's a ladies man. There's the happy, sappy ending. And there's this kind of really tragic middle part where Drew Barrymore is, you know, grappling with this traumatic brain injury and it's actually quite compelling and mm-hmm. i love that and i think she did a fantastic job doing that how about you jb okay. you got any high points um actually i have a few i i actually like the ending unambiguously okay because it's a sort of coming it it pulls together that feeling of though her problem is not actually overcome she still has short-term memory loss but they're doing their work to make it not an issue. They're overcoming. Yeah. And the the never fixing the core problem, mm. like never having like a miraculous scientific fix for it. Yeah. I think really ties the movie together in a good way. And I also like the sort of more authentic and nice performance from Sandler because it proves that he does actually have the ability to act with good dramatic range and just doesn't use it very often because you're right it does have that sort of Adam Sandler comedy to it but it also has this more serious side that I think doesn't come out enough and I really like the chemistry that he has with a lot of the class with a lot of the cast even though he's he keeps dragging his friends into movies and they are, are not great actors. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say, I think a lot of the supporting cast put in really good performances with the notable exception of Rob Schneider. Who were some of the supporting... He was who I was thinking of. Who were some of the supporting cast members that he would like identify as giving uh, a really good performance? Well, first of all, let me pull up the IMDb so I have their names. So I can you know give a little bit of proper credit. Fifty first dates, uh, in particular, because uh, and actually this is part of why I think Robert Schneider is kind of uses because you have Pomaikai Brown or Pomaikai Brown as Nick, the big yeah. guy with the tattoo, and he fulfills the same role as Ula, but he's way more authentic and way more charming. 
he's kind of like the big fat older brother character in the cafe who threatens Adam Sandler with a cleaver. He's great. Uh, you know, you had his uh, what's her name? The late the lady at the Sue. Sue. You had Sue. She was great. You had uh, Doug was okay. Sean Astin is the kind of roided up brother. He, I think I have some problems with him as a character in the script, but as an actor, I think he had a funny and charming performance. And I think the, probably the standout among the, the supporting characters is Blake Clark as Marlon Whitmore, the father. There's some very good pathos that comes out through him. And he's probably the most human character after Lucy. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. The, the father has a lot of strong moments. Yeah. He gives and, a very sincere performance. And I'm going to so. go ahead and drop in a little teaser for one of my big points for the deep cuts. Is I think he is the only character unafflicted by the profound cruelty of this movie. <laughs> Ooh. I am, <laughs> that I'm, is a way to put that. I'm going to agree with that, like, pretty hardcore. <laughs> okay. All right, so what did let, and let's now go to a little bit of negatives, and like what did we really hate about this movie, or what did we dislike? It doesn't have to be hate. Uh, Annie, you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so I have some issues with um, representation here with regards to basically any person of color in this movie. Um, so obviously the film is set in Hawaii with, they've shot on a lot of different locations. Like it looks to me like they've shot in Maui, they've shot in Kona, um, a couple different places. And, um, in terms of representation, we get a lot of stereotypical, uh, characterizations of indigenous folks. So for instance, um, with um, Pomai Kai I Brown's character is uh, he's kind of a characterization that you tend to see a lot in any film that focuses on um, Hawaii or like Americans in Hawaii specifically, which is he's kind of like um, the big guy. He's big, he's friendly, and like essentially harmless but he will also potentially be very violent too so there are threats of violence that kind of dwell within that um that's an issue also at issue is rob schneider's character ula who oh boy is kind of seems to be intended to code as either polynesian or at least as somebody who has lived on the island for a very long time um and the ambiguity of the name Ula itself is kind of interesting. Um, I think it's meant to make us question what exactly or his identity is. His children in the film are appear to be slash seem to state throughout the film that they are um, indigenous Hawaiian kids. So that's an issue um, as well because you obviously have Rob Schneider who is a, um, a white actor, a Polish Jewish actor. Um, playing a person of color, which is really kind of interesting. I do think he is supposed to sincerely be a Polynesian character. And not, yeah. I don't say sincerely, yeah. but genuinely, in in fact, yeah. of, of the script. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, he's just, he, he's he's kind of, because it's Rob Schneider, and it's this character who's kind of the butt of jokes, it's okay for, and it's not okay, but it's okay insofar as the intent of the movie to portray him with all these you know, stereotypical, you know, let's, let's, let's go ahead and say racist, uh, stereotypes. You know, he's lazy. He does, he smokes a lot of weed. Uh, he's a walking disaster. He hates his wife. Like he's just a lot of just negative, lazy humor condensed into one character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Adam Sandler ba basically skirts off being obscene. But Ula definitely is. You know, he's licking his coconut tits, yeah. stuff like that. It's just... Also he, lying he, to he, his kids. Lying to his kids. Constantly. Uh, actually, I'm going to go ahead and go into one of my negatives here. I don't like... I don't like Adam Sandler. Like, I like him sometimes. I like him especially in his old work. But I feel like he's kind of the worst part of this movie. 
And you can really see that in the beginning of the movie where you're talking about Henry Roth and how he's this amazing ladies' man. You have the sequence where you have a whole bunch of different women. Some of them, like, one's a surgeon, one's, like, a secretary. one, And they're all talking about, ah, Henry Roth, we had a summer fling. And the way he establishes himself as a cool guy who's a ladies' man is to basically show contempt for their intelligence. And I don't like that. Well, and also the in the film itself, like, think about that first interaction that we see between him and I believe that one woman who's, like, got this really thick southern accent. And he's telling her that he's a secret agent and she is buying it. Yeah. She buys it. Which not only yeah. suggests that his character has contempt for women within the narrative, it suggests that the screenwriting itself has contempt for these women overall and potentially therefore for female characters and for some of the women audience members. Although Drew Barrymore kind of like nuances that out a little bit. Yeah. What about you, JB? You got any pet peeves? I, I like the movie, but I definitely understand the problems with it. And specifically I get, kind of angry at the screenwriter anytime Alexa is on screen. Yeah. Oh boy, Alexa. Because that character is a wellspring <laughs> of bad writing and really damaging attitudes. Yeah. They're played they're I, I say they because I can't tell what gender they're supposed to be. Alexa is a character who works with Henry at his job and is seemingly deliberately not gendered solidly in either direction. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but the portrayal is so aggressively reductive that it's painful i think another trope they're trying to play into is she comes across as like eastern european like that like yeah. german stir it's like that robin williams skit you know olga have, have, brrr, you know it's she she feels like i and i think it is a lady that seems to be the implication but she is yeah. portrayed as being first of all kind of his bitch you know he he plays pranks on her with the you know even if he knows it's a prank, he still says, you know, go into the bottom of the barrel. And she is basically submissive to a fault to his eyes. Like, there's kind of contempt for her there. He also but... slaps her with a fish in the face, which I thought was really interesting. Yes. Um, I think, Silvio, that kind of solidifies what you're saying about submissive behavior because it's legitimately the next line after that is, well, you needed to be slapped because you were being irrational. Which, for me, just kind of sent me back to all the old Star Trek episodes where that happened. So I was kind of like, oh, okay, interesting. Um, and she's yeah, also kind the, of like the slapstick. Yeah, chick. the other thing I'm also yeah. going to say is, because I'm not familiar with her as an actress, but I've got her IMDb up here. And she's actually quite pretty. So she's made uglier, definitely, by this movie. You know, she's given, like, more pronounced cheekbones. She looks a little bit manly and so on. And she also looks very yeah. lanky. She dresses unflatteringly. She wears, like, you know, those, like, you know, uh, Steve Irwin shorts. And one thing is, uh, she's, the other thing is she's also coded as old. She has that yeah. like old matronly braid wrapped around the head. Yeah. So all in all, I feel like everything about her character is designed to make her an acceptable target for Adam Sandler's humor. And yeah. I don't, I think that might've held up while we were younger and maybe when this movie came out maybe not even then but looking at it today it's it doesn't work no it's aggressively politically incorrect yeah and i think also um part of the reason why it's so politically incorrect is because of the fact that all of the humor is targeted at this person failing to be readable to the audience failing to perform femininity, but also failing to perform masculinity. And then also, like, at one point, um, her sexual orientation is at question, too. So, like, there's so much ambiguity mm -hmm. to the character that that's what's being made fun of. 
JB, did you have something? I don't know. It's it's really kind of being when I re, when I remember this movie, my brain deliberately seems to completely gloss over that character. And I think you'd be happier and, for it. And another another point is the character is narratively completely unnecessary. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. They serve no narrative purpose. They are there just to be the butt of jokes. Yeah. Yeah. I will also make one last comment, just because I don't want to spend too long on this, but also I feel like I want to make this comment, is it's not just her sexual orientation, but it is her sexual aggression that is also the butt of the jokes. You know, uh, she's like, oh, you're having a bad one. I will be waiting one time offer in your office naked. And, you know, she uh, grabs Doug's butt. You know, she is portrayed as being very... First of all, uh, there's some mention of, like, I prefer sausage to taco, you know, putting things in the category term, but also that she is an aggressor and that kind of ties in with her image of being this mannish woman. Right. Yeah. I think, I just think, I don't have anything really more to say about that. I just wanted to call that to attention because that wasn't really covered by what we've discussed and I I don't like it. Yeah. No, it's, it's very bad. (laughs) Like it's just not a good character in any way. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're kind of getting at the point where we kind of got, we kind of want to get into some deep cuts. So yes. what I want to go around one last time is say, is there any other little things? Because like that's kind of how you want to do criticism, even though we're not really talking to anyone involved in this movie. Yeah. You know, you do something nice, you do something bad, you end on something nice. So any last nice things about the movie? JB, let's start with you. I actually kind of like some of the creativity in some of these date setups like as much as they tend to be really stupid jokes they also genuinely seem to have put a little bit of effort into thinking of creative ways that he could come up with to initiate a date yeah absolutely and it and it shows especially when he kidnaps a penguin to facilitate (laughs) yeah i do love the penguin annie what about you okay um yeah i think i've come around a little bit about this movie just since we've started talking about it. I do like the creative date ideas. Um, I also really love the fact that they're having Drew Barrymore do art in this movie, Um, whether that's helping other people who are struggling with something through art, through teaching art classes, or through her kind of like doing mural work. I think that's really cool um, because it's helping to normalize um, art therapy, which is really, really important for it anybody who has memory loss, PTSD, all of these things, it's super, super good for them. Um, I also love Drew Barrymore, and I actually really kind of appreciate both her characterization in the film. Also, she's just, like, super hot in this film. It can't just be me, right? <laughs> Got a pretty nice caboose. Yeah, uh, which <laughs> brings me to my last little point, is <laughs> I really like the soundtrack in this movie. There's, It's very extensive. There's a couple original pieces, but uh, there, there's a whole plot point where Lucy sings like her parents' favorite song, Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. Yeah. And she sings badly, but like <laughs> the, the integration of the song feels very organic. Like I said, my sister used to sing that all the time. And there's a lovely, just, it's a lovely little tapestry of Hawaii. And Annie, that was kind of your point, but just, you know, you've got Israel... Yeah. You've got Israel. I'm not going to try and pronounce his last name. I'm going to slaughter it. But, you know, his version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Yeah. Which makes that last scene so touching. It is a wonderful, just a wonderful, like, I guess you call that the bay pan around. Yeah. Well, and Israel's music is pretty much like everywhere in Hawaii. Um, actually, one of the actors in the film, um, Pomai Kai, was also a ukulele Um, player for a very long time before he became an actor. I love that they incorporated this music in it. I do think it's really, really interesting, the specific songs that they chose. So Israel's music has become famous, not just in Hawaii, but elsewhere as well. But in Hawaii, it's played in many of the main tourist uh, locations. So for a lot of people coming to this movie who are unfamiliar with going to Hawaii or knowing somebody who's from there, um, this kind of initiates them into that say if they've ever been to a hotel um 
there, so they're kind of able to come into the film that way. That being said, also, that means that the film is clearly targeted at American tourists to a certain extent who have the ability to go to Hawaii. Um, and this is also the music that they'll hear in the hotel, too, so... That's kind well, of this is kind of yeah. This is kind of the beginning of the trend of the Adam Sandler vacation movie, so that makes a lot of sense. So, do we want to go straight into that? Because we cannot avoid that's kind of been the elephant sure. in the room. Is this is an Adam, Adam Sandler, Sandler movie, and that's kind of the worst part about it. I think it's kind of impossible to dodge. We're gonna have to talk about it so, because Adam Sandler has a very particular kind of movie that he makes. Yeah, and this is one of them. Actually, JB, do you want to say a little bit more about that? Did you have any particular thoughts about this movie with regards to Adam Sandler's work? Adam Sandler as a whole is someone that I have really, since young childhood, had a sort of love-hate relationship with. Mm. He's got a lot of movies that are well-liked by many people, but... I tend to not like the movies of his that are popular. Mm. I tend to like movies of his that kind of flop. Mm. Like, this movie didn't do particularly well to my memory. Yeah. Um, no, this movie did fine. 120 did million. Oh. oh, this one did all right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, this, was, this... And this is the movie of his that did well that I liked. <laughs> and... Sorry. It's a... That's all I can do. I can just okay. sigh about it. All right. Well, let yeah, me, but, that's understandable. Yeah. Let me go into this because I've done a little bit of reading on the numbers and so on. And there seem to be three kind of phases to Adam Sandler's career. Because I like Adam Sandler. I think he's a funny guy. But when you look at his early movies, his early movies are great. And his entire bit, I think, has always been this kind of righteous but frustrated and impotent anger. And that's where his humor comes from. You know, Waterboy, he's angry, but he's a he's a mentally challenged redneck. Uh, you know, you got uh, Big Daddy. You got it, like he's got that impotent rage and the silly voices, and he fl- he flips out a lot. He's like a weird De Niro, and he do- he does some movies with De Niro. But in that first phase, coming off of SNL, where he's headlining, it's great because they construct the movies in such a way that you have a target for his anger that is righteous. You know, you've yeah. got Mr. Deeds, where he's angry at, you know, a system that wants to take a kid away. You've got The Water Boy, where you have these elitist, high-class, educated people who are just smarter than him. You've got Little Nicky, where it's like this heaven and hell thing. And then you get to the phase where he kind of came out of that. Yeah. Uh, Punch Drunk Love, which was a drama, Fifty First Dates, which is like a romantic comedy, which has some elements of the dramatic to it. But here's the thing. You look at the movie that came after that, Spanglish, which was this weird, like, lost in translation kind of dramatic project, only made $42 million. The Longest Yard goes back to a remake and a comedy, $158 million. Click, comedy, but with like this weird dramatic turn at the end 140 million dollars rain over me a movie about like adam sandler playing this broken shell of a man only made 20 million dollars you know just i feel like he tried to expand his range and maybe become a dramatic actor and it didn't work he wasn't rewarded so now he's gone back to just making his vacation movies which has worked out for him financially but the other thing is i feel like as a cultural institution, Hollywood has become normalized to Adam Sandler and just assumes that his anger is what's funny, not looking at the context of what it's going against. So I feel like now he's just kind of in contempt of what are not acceptable targets. He's mean to his friends. He's mean to people who care about them. He's, you know, like in this movie, there's some signs of that there. He's kind of contemptuous of women and so on. And in his movies now, he does not take the time to make something an acceptable target to you know characterize his antagonist as you know evil can i venture something about that actually um absolutely so um i know it can be really tempting to psychoanalyze um people and sort of like why they do what they do uh regardless of the problematics of that i'm gonna do that here so i think that in part 
part of what we're seeing and part of what you've just explained, this idea that Hollywood kind of capitalizes on Sandler's anger. Um, most of movie, of the movies that Sandler was making early on, like you were saying, are targeted at people who are kind of like either above him in status or above him in some form of privilege. Uh, but now it seems as though most of his movies are sort of like punching downward, taking easy hits. And I think part of the reason why this is is because Sandler has kind of become the man himself, where before some of his comedy was a little bit subversive, right? Um, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of some of the kind of like anti-intellectualist hits he makes in The Waterboy, which is actually a really like pretty strong um, comedic film. My mama invented electricity. Yeah, exactly. Um now he's kind of like punching downward and that is pretty it suggests that he is kind of going with this cynical um i don't know regimen that the studio system has set up for him and also the fact that like he has essentially for the past few years been making films like taking a vacation with his cast members who are a lot of times his friends and they'll go on vacation to these big resorts and shoot a movie, um, like his last movie with Jennifer Aniston. Um, and there's actually been quite a few write-ups on this that are specifically talking about Sandler and nepotism. So this seems to be a case of somebody who um, has kind of like lost the passion for their craft, uh, mainly because of money um, and status and being able to kind of do whatever he wants, which is sad because... Um, if any of our listeners have not yet seen Punch Drunk Love, oh my god, you need to see it. It is, it's a really engaging and strange and absurd performance. Um, it's one of the few times that I was like, okay, Adam Sandler, yes, I see that you can do this. And he's also performing alongside Philip Seymour Hoffman, so he's got, you know, somebody who is really strongly grounded in his own craft. So that's part of what I think is going on with Adam Sandler. And Silvio, we've heard your take on Sandler as well. And JB, um, did you have anything more to add about Sandler? I think you covered it pretty well. I, I would come back to the idea that he is a capable actor who has sort of been typecast really, really strongly into this sort of mean comedy. And the scripts that he writes show more and more, or, well, that he's involved with, show more and more this sort of anger. And as he's gotten older, the, the target has definitely wandered mm. off of being, like, harder targets, as you're talking about punching up instead of punching down. Yeah. And now he's sort of taking the easy route and just picking a target that he thinks he can get laughs out of and just going. And it's not flattering to him and it makes his movies more crass overall. I think also there's that. And Annie, you kind of mentioned this, that he has like, you know, his nepotism, his little posse, his entourage. This also extends to directors and writers who seem to work with him frequently. So I feel like there's kind of a stasis where he's not really... I don't know if he's not reaching out for new things to try or if studios just aren't offering him stuff. But, you know, that's kind of beyond the scope of what I think we can talk about. But he seems um, so to I be... Sorry. Um, he seems to actually be taking scripts from writers who are doing kind of like one-off scripts. So um, George Wing hasn't really written anything of substance, really, um, outside of Fifty First Dates. And then also uh, an NBC comedy show that was canceled, I believe, in 2011. And it was called um, Outsourced. I actually watched it for a while, um, which also had some issues because it was dealing with um, Indian folks who were working in a call center and kind of an American, a white American male who goes over there to work with them. It had some issues with insensitivity. It was a pretty interestingly challenging show. It was kind of funny too. Um, but I do think that's interesting that he's chosen kind of like a one-off um, screenwriter. So George Wing wrote 50 First Dates. And it makes me wonder, you know, like, is he sort of like 
searching for these scripts that, you know, like other people may not have necessarily attached to and been like, oh, we can do something with this or like what's happening with the screenwriter choices there. I don't know. I can only speculate. Okay. I've actually, I've got, I've got two more things to say here. One, I want to ask everyone what's their favorite Adam Sandler movie. But before we get to that, I do want to just make a little bit of a joke slash maybe a bit of a theory here. Because I'm looking at Fifty First Dates as the start of the Sandler vacation movie. Mm. But also, you can also look at it as the Sandler, I want to do a thing, make a movie where I do the thing movie. Because here's, mm. here's an interesting thing I noted. The other, like his most recent kind of flop was Blended. A romantic comedy he did with Drew Barrymore in 2014. So part of this movie might not be just, like, hey, I want to go to Hawaii, but also, hey, I want to make out with Drew Barrymore. <laughs> so maybe 10 years later, he did the exact same thing because that's them being parents, single parents who are attracted to each other while stuck together on a vacation. You know, I, I haven't seen the movie, but it just it strikes me as kind of funny. So yeah. what's everyone's favorite Adam Sandler movie? Because there is a lot of love for the guy here, I'm feeling, just, you know, reading oh, the room a yeah. bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. JB, let's start with you. You brought us Sandler. <laughs> I I'm probably gonna catch some flag for this, but I unambiguously like Little Nicky. Oh yeah. I was actually just, just to be completely honest. Yeah. I I'm not gonna give you flag for that. That's it's a funny movie. I'm talking about we're putting this on the internet, sir. Yeah, well you <laughs> can get true. hounded. I won't. That's <laughs> actually I probably true. will. You probably will. My addresses. No one's gonna know where Don't I am. Don't give anyone I was your address. I'm gonna try to get you to plug your Twitter or something, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't have one. All right. Well, good on you, Mr. Recluse. What about you, Annie? What yeah, know, What do right? you like? Um, this is a weird pick, but is I'm gonna go with the Wedding Singer. I really like Punch Drunk Love too, <laughs> but I'm going with the Wedding Singer mainly because I have this really like fun, nostalgic memories of watching this. Um, with my sister when I was younger. We were just watching it on TV. I think it was like a WGN, like a rerun or something. And it's also set in the 80s, which happens to be one of my favorite time periods. And there's just, there's big hair, everything's crazy. And it's just ridiculous. And I, I really have this genuine love for this movie. Silvio, how about you? Okay. Uh... I, I want to say the water boy, but I'm actually because you know I was quoting it earlier. Yeah. It just it, it it's it's got a lot of really good gags that I remember. You know H two O Gatorade. Yeah. That that kind of stuff. But if I want to go for actually looking at Sandler, because I think the water boy is, it's good. But I think probably my favorite movie by him is Click, and it's not just that it's funny and not just that it's dramatic, but. It's structured around Sandler to a certain degree because the entire first half of the movie is him being an unrepentant asshole and punching down, and that's part of the journey he goes through as a character. When he realizes that he's ruined his life and skipped all the wonderful things and lost everything he's had around him, that he's at the end of his days, that's a heartbreaking scene. And the comedy from earlier, the cruelty of Adam Sandler, that plays into it and that enhances it and makes it stronger. No one else could have done that movie but Adam Sandler. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Isn't that the one where Kate Beckinsale is his wife? Uh, let me check. The super, I, I don't remember who the super hot lady from Underworld, for those who need context. Yeah, that was that was Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> so I want to bring up a point about this movie. And since we've established our feelings on Sandler in that I feel there's two movies here. Huh. And... At the core of it, there's this movie about this really interesting situation with mental health. There's, you know, Lucy and her family who are kind of enslaved to her, but not by her volition. And that's something I actually want to bring up because I have it written down here. The timestamp where they first ask, what does Lucy want, is one hour. It is one hour into this movie before anyone asks for her volition and her agency in this. And that's fucked up. Yeah. And I think that's actually a core part of the movie though. Yeah. It is. I'm not is I'm not... that sort of fundamental switch from the focus on her family and Henry's wants to what does Lucy want? And that kind of triggers the dramatic shift in the movie too. Absolutely. I'm not saying that that's not what's happening, but what I what I am trying to get at though is before you get to that point and Lucy starts speaking 
Lucy, I think, is our main character. She is the most interesting, compelling, the most human character because she is the point of suffering for all this and also the nexus for the suffering of other characters. But at the beginning of the movie, you have Adam Sandler, Henry Roth, Henry Roth, Henry Roth. He, we fuck like mallards, you know? It's just that entire section of the movie is entirely forgettable. And the, you can see this in a couple different ways. The humor is it's crueler. And one thing I really noticed is the cuts are so much faster. Look at the beginning of the movie where you have like cutting, intercutting between five different parallel stories. Uh, look at the cafe where he's being goofy, you know, where he's doing the crime scene. And then look at when they're in love. When they're in love, there's this beautiful shot where you're doing that circular pan around the lighthouse and they're in front of it and it's this beautiful white lighthouse and then you rotate out and these red stairs come out from it. It's this wonderful splash of color. When this movie is not sucking Adam Sandler's dick, it's really beautiful. But like I said, uh, Adam Sandler's humor, I think, is defined not only by anger, but to a certain degree by cruelty. It's not enough that you punch up, it's that you punch up and you go for the nuts. And, like I said, he's kind of punching down in a lot of places in this movie, and that's where I feel like this movie, every, almost every character, with the exception of Marlon, Every character is cruel in some way. Uh, actually, and you could argue that Marlon is unwittingly cruel in that he's kind of holding Lucy in this prison of her repeating day. But that's that's done, I think, more out of weakness for him. He doesn't want to see his daughter in pain. So it's not necessarily... But in particular, I think the breakup scene, where she not only does she cut him out of her diary and you know write up a new one, but she makes him sit and go through it with her. It's profoundly cruel. And I, I think that, work, that particular instance works, but the rest of it comes from Sandler and his entourage. You have Dan Aykroyd in there as the doctor. And he ha there's a particular patient, 10 Second Tom, who, and this kind of gets to me personally, because my grandmother kind of got to that state where you would have a conversation with her, and five minutes later she would ask the same question. And there's this guy who's like, hi, I'm Tom. And that's all he can say. It only lasts 10 seconds. But, uh, you know, the doctor introduces him as a prop. And it's, 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 it would be kind of okay if it was like, hey, look how bad it could be. But he also, like, just pokes at him and prods him. And, like, he's got, you can see that this is a habit. That, you know, he has fun with it. And I don't like that. I just don't. Even Yeah. Okay, I, I, I want to... Oh, please continue. Yeah, I, I want to add just one more thing, because, like, this is an example of even a one-off character with no name in the script. Uh, later on, uh, Lucy is doing art therapy, and one of the patients is like, wow, I suck, because he's drawn, like, a little stick figure. And another patient comes up to him and says, nah, man, you're Pablo Picasso. Really? Nah. It's just... Every time they go for cheap laughs, it's about cruelty. And I feel like that really does a disservice to this really interesting dramatic movie that's kind of sandwiched in the middle there. That's, I think this is a pretty convincing thesis about how the humor operates in the movie itself. Um, was anybody getting a tiny bit of Princess in the Tower vibes from, like, about Drew Barrymore's character? A tiny bit. JB? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think it's really challenging to do a movie, especially trying to do a rom-com about somebody who has a disability. <laughs> like, that is very intensely difficult work um, that you kind of have to do. And so, like, that was one of the things that I was wondering, Sylvia, when you were talking about her... Um, her dad as being kind of like very protective. I was wondering if you saw that as kind of like a prince, princess in the tower type trope, you know, mm. where she kind of has to be, she essentially the story, if you read it through that folklore lens, 51st States makes a lot of sense, right? So the princess in yeah. the tower story is not actually read through the perspective of the princess it's read through the perspective of the prince who is searching for her whether he knows it or whether that's unconscious 
and we kind of only stumble upon the princess as soon as the prince does and then all of the interactions that we see are kind of um, revolving around slash pivoting her interaction with the prince he basically wakes her up either literally or metaphorically perhaps yeah i can definitely see that yeah I don't. I kind of um, don't know so what to make of that. that I aspect. I don't know what to make of it. JB, what were you gonna say? Sorry. Uh, it's there's definitely that aspect to yeah. it where she's kind of gated behind all of these people who outwardly very much care about her, but don't really have a terribly healthy way of showing it, and it does kind of keep her prisoner in. Her own almost separate timeline. Yeah. Where she's outside of time. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like if you mix Groundhog Day with the Truman Show. Yeah, in a way. Everyone knows but her. Yeah, I want I want to mention one thing, and I think this is... Again, like, this is that core of the movie that I really love, is Marlin is such a poignant character. Because you can see as they go through the day after we learn the con... We can see them going through their day and they're frustrated. You know, Doug knows the, the game that was on TV that day by heart. And, you know, he abuses that to get her to do the dishes. But, and, you know, they're kind of abusive to each other in that. Like, hey, you idiot. Mm. But in particular, at the end of the day when she's asleep, there is such sadness in that household. In particular, she always paints a mural on uh, the wall of the workshop. And it's a beautiful mural, and they take pictures of it, and they paint it over flat every time. And it's... And this is another... There's a little bit of a tangent, but just the way they set that up, the way they have thousands of papers, the way they have to reset their lives, it's a prison of their own making, and it's absolutely tragic. But also, now that I mention it, there are some things about this that I feel like they are not caring for her as so much as they are deflecting the problem of her away from themselves. Uh, because I've done mural painting. I've painted murals. And that that thing she did on the wall, that's like, that's hours and hours of work. You honestly couldn't do that in a day. So the fact that she's doing so much work, I, I, I just feel like to a certain degree, they are trying to protect her, but subconsciously they're just trying to occupy her. And it's just a, it's a really tragic sequence. And I think without, again, without Adam Sandler, if that was the core of the movie, this could be such an interesting and just profoundly affecting film. I think it would have been deeply tragic without Sandler's character, which I, I think is really, really interesting. Um, I think also that your interpretation of the family is interesting too, but I, I do want to give them a tiny bit more credit. Again, because... Um, this is a film partly about dealing with mental illness, even though it's this very like surface level blockbustery comedy, there are some moments of depth to it. Um, and you do get the sense from the film that her dad deeply cares for her. So I don't know if I see all of this stuff as like the projects that she engages in that her dad encourages her to be in as, um, projects that are necessarily just about occupying her time or subconsciously deflecting responsibility away from her family. I think they're about making her happy, um, which is, that's a very, very difficult thing, right? When you have somebody who is suffering from amnesia or dementia. Um... Yeah. JB, we're kind of in two minds about this. You got any two cents on this? I actually kind of agree more with the latter point. I think that because when I want to draw attention to a particular moment okay. where we see the disruption, where reality breaks through and she gets to understand that she's losing days, months of her life. Because in that moment, she is just her her entire world is shattered and she's furious. And the big problem there is what here, here's the question I want to pose. What if you had to do that every day? What if you had to look her in the eyes every day and tell her the last thing you remember was four months ago 
and you've lived every single day and forgotten. And that's a big part of the latter half of the movie is getting her to the point and getting the characters to the point where they can accept that profound anger and frustration that she quite well acts out and characterizes. And I think that's a big reason why at the end of the movie, she wakes up in the cabin alone. Henry's not there with her to help her through this moment. And I believe that her, her father and her brother are doing this to an extent for themselves, but also for her, because that's traumatic. Think if you woke up tomorrow and discovered that you'd lived every day of the last six months and don't remember it and don't remember a minute of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's almost a mercy. I can see that. Uh, But what I'm, I kind of want to elaborate on my point a little bit because I'm not Hmm. saying that they're being cruel or that they're being self-serving so much as I think what's what's a really telling line is when Adam Sandler comes to them he's like well what you gonna do you know 10 years from now she looks in the mirror and realizes she's 40 you know what are you gonna do and he says I have I think about that every goddamn day and that's the thing is they have a stopgap solution and they are so wrapped in the inertia of that that they don't have a long-term plan oh okay I see what you're saying so this is kind of like not to cheapen this, but this is the Taylor Swift um, philosophical approach to the problem is Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes. I mean, that's essentially what you're arguing, which I think makes a ton of sense, right? They have this short-term plan. Long-term, there are questions that they just can't fully answer or articulate or even begin to come up with a long-term solution. Is that part of what you're saying? Like, there's not really a long-term solution to this. kind of. Like, it's not... It, it's not that they're cruel or neglectful. It's that yeah. they are not they they are not fully dealing with this, and that's okay. That's a character flaw that I think is really humanizing and really engaging. Now, I have a question I want to pose to you guys. Hmm. Let's let's say we're let's go hypothetical here and say that we're studio executives and we got this as the first cut of the movie. What, what, what would we want to change? What, what can we change? I mean, because my change is I want to excise Adam Sandler from this movie maybe find a different leading man, but that's not going to work. So let's say, no. like, what are the small things I think that could improve on this? Because I think we're really, really engaged with the second half of this movie and we really just are kind of disdainful of the first half. So I'm curious if we think there's more ways to save this. I can think of a few things that you could change that are actually fairly small things yeah go ahead one henry roth is not a ladies man just cut that entire subplot it serves no narrative purpose it's just there to look at how cool i am yeah and two get rid of alexa please please Mm. can we get rid of ula we could also get rid of ula ula also doesn't serve a narrative purpose He could be fulfilled by a character that had one-fifth of the flaws. Just have Nick. And would still be a a decent character. Just have Nick. Nick's great. Nick fulfills the same function and is much... I feel much less offensive. That's that's me saying it. I'm I'm not representing those people, but he, he strikes me as much more charming and much more likable and... It's playing into a similar kind of space. And he's a real person of color. He's not Rob Schneider in shoe polish. Wait. Are are you suggesting that Nick be moved to a rewrite of the Ula character? No. No, not like not to, to kind of scrap some of the stuff that they do with Ula. And I would even argue you could scrap some of the stuff that they do with Nick. Like the weird silliness about the peanut butter cups was just really kind of strange and out there. Let um let yeah. Nick be sort of like a normal guy whose kids are kind of like running around, you know, because he works at the diner and they're kind of they show up. Just there have once more Nick. While. Yeah, have more Nick and have him play a character who's like a couple steps closer to his own personality, 
and kind of right. let it be a bit more about that. I think if it, like you're saying, JB, if it was a bit more like reality based versus like absurdist, um, I think it would work a bit better. I actually have a thought here. Um, I would actually kind of like it if, because here's the thing, you have, uh, you have Henry's circle and you have, oh geez, Windows Update. Okay, no, absolutely not. Okay. Podcasting, everybody. <laughs> Windows Update. Do that tomorrow. Enemy of okay, all podcasts. Okay, done. Okay, sorry, let me, let me finish. <laughs> but you have Henry's circle and you have Lucy's circle and they don't intersect until he has that accident and he washes up on the cafe so what i would actually like to see maybe if he's friends with nick mm. because then you have a point of connection and he's like hey comes hang out you can still have the accent he's like hey my buddy work nick works around here you know and yeah have, and have also them... adam sandler doesn't have to own a boat yeah ha that was random <laughs> and then the steering wheel breaks i was very confused by that very confused i kind of like that just because it, it showed him as being inept in a way that was funny and wasn't, like, punching down on anyone. But also, there's right. this great gag where he's fixing it the first time, and he's putting up a bicycle wheel as the steering wheel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a moment. I think that's actually a good moment of characterization, because you get a little bit of this self-deprecating sense of humor there. But there's also, like, because he's replacing it with a bicycle wheel, like, that's funny and absurd, but it's also showing his creativity. I think those types of character choices are the good character choices. Again, this is something that's rooted in the actual actor's personality itself. Um, and so it's, it's letting you kind of play with that and, and to be self-deprecating, which is, to be honest, that's a lot more endearing in a romantic comedy than being a ladies' man. So I think you could actually play right. that into things a little bit more. Um, in particular, I think you could maybe rewrite the whole ladies' man thing. Mm. And I think he could still do this, but also have it be... Have the movie not drink its own Kool-Aid. Because I feel like Adam <laughs> yeah. Sandler came to this project and said, Make me a sexy ladies' man. <laughs> and sexy. The, in, the, in, the late, in the later half of the movie, you get Lucy like, How do you make me fall in love with that egg-shaped head of yours? You know, have, have the movie not sincerely buy into the fact that Henry Roth is this cool ladies man because yeah. it does and it doesn't work mm. so no, it doesn't work if he if he if like maybe if he just shot and missed a lot that i think would be mm. much more compelling it would give him like this frustration to work off instead of having him have like ah oh, my life is hollow but now that i have lucy like i suddenly don't want this thing that i've been successful at getting all the time isn't there a movie yeah you're right like that this? was kind of abrupt sorry isn't there a movie like this I feel like there is a movie like this that recently came out. Are you out. thinking of Are you thinking of Hitch? No, I'm not thinking of Hitch. I'm thinking of About Time with Domhnall Gleeson and Rachel McAdams, which I had the unfortunate I have not seen that. Uh, yeah, I unfortunately saw this. Um, basically it's about a guy who discovers that he can time travel and he is able to uh, attempt to woo a woman he doesn't quite know how to do it um, and that's part of where the comedy in the film comes from it's called about time slightly different concept um, but it works because Domino Gleason is so like self-deprecating and kind of like geeky and hilarious to a certain extent uh, but also kind of a weird concept too so I feel like that's sort of what 50 first dates could potentially have become if they hadn't let that humor happen like that. Yeah. So I think we're kind of wrapping up on time here. So any closing thoughts from you guys? Let's start with you, JB. I think that there is a serious core of a really good movie here mm. ruined by some directing choices, some writing choices, and some casting choices. And there's something genuinely salvageable. And if someone came back to this script and redid it, we could really see something truly great out of this. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Um, and I think, too, I... that in us critiquing this film, what we're not attempting to do is to suggest either that people don't see Fifty First Dates, that Fifty First Dates is, quotes, objectively bad. What we're trying to do is to make a space for criticism and critique to do exactly what JB just did to say, you know, there's some problems with this film, but there's also a core to it 
that a lot of people might value, a lot of people really enjoyed too. Um, and I think there's a lot of value in that. Silvio, how about you? I mean, I, I basically agree wholeheartedly. Um, even through the course of this discussion, I remember, you know, I hated the first half of this movie, but there's something really powerful at the end of it. And I just wish that we had more of that. So mm. I actually, I came away enjoying this, even though I have my frustrations with it. But that's, that kind of comes with the territory because we did come here to talk about the movie and you could not avoid Adam Sandler, who's, you know, the middle of this movie. Yeah. Yes. He's the core. All right. So uh, this has been On the Slab, Fifty uh, First Dates. I've been Silvio Emery. You guys can follow me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. Annie? I've been Annie, and I'm still in grad school. I'm never going to escape it. <laughs> and finally, JB. I've been JB, and it was a pleasure being on. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks Hopefully we'll have on. you again on again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. All right. Good night, folks. No problem. Good night. Good night.